Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Ellen Horwitz. He is Board of Governance Professor in the Department of Sociology and the Institute for Health, Healthcare Policy and Aging Research at Rutgers University. He has also chaired the Mental Health and Medical Sociology sections of the American Sociological Association, as well as the Psychiatric Sociology section of the Society for the Study of Social Problems. His research has focused on the sociology of mental health and illness. In 2006, he received the Leonard I. Perlin Award for Distinguished Contributions to the Sociological Study of Mental Health from the American Sociological Association Section on Sociology of Mental Health. In addition, he has published several books, including the one that we're going to focus the most on today, What's Normal, Reconciling Biology and Culture. So, Dr. Horowitz, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Ricardo. Okay, great. So, uh, let me start with this question. It, it seems to me that sociology isn't one of those disciplines that historically has focused that much on the sort of biological aspects of human behavior, right? So, and I wanted to ask you about that because since your book is about trying to reconcile, as it says in the title, uh, biology and culture, so what would you have to say about that? Yeah, well, it's certainly true that historically sociologists have really tended to either, you know, probably for the most part, ignore biology, or if they weren't ignoring it, they were actively saying it doesn't matter. <laughs> so um, that I think has been changing a little bit recently. I think more and more, especially given now the um, flourishing of neuroscience in the broader culture and just the tremendous attention in the popular press on biological explanations that it's become, I think, very, very difficult for sociology to ignore um, biology. So I do see somewhat of a, an upsurge in interest. Mm -hmm. But do you think that if sociologists ignore bi human biology, that could be an handicap for the discipline? Oh, absolutely. And the, the point of my book is to say, well, it, so it really depends on what it is that you're studying, whether it's a handicap or not to ignore biology, although usually it's a good idea to try and look at the great variety of interactions between social factors and biological factors. Mm -hmm. By the way, I've been having lots of anthropologists on the show and I never asked this question before. What's the difference between anthropology and sociology? Yeah, well, I think at a very broad theoretical level, they really study the same thing. I mean, they study human societies and, you know, what sort of makes societies and the individuals in them tick. But historically, they've just been very, very different. That 
sociologists have typically studied their own countries, their own culture, um, especially now, I mean, something called me-search, that is doing research on people who are just like you are. <laughs> um, but anthropologists really historically went in just the opposite direction and went to study you know, far-flung cultures that were about as different from their own as possible. Um, the methods of the two fields have been very, very different. Anthropology um, traditionally used ethnographic research that is going to the culture you're studying and you know, just looking around, recording what you see personally in that setting, where sociologists have been much more likely to use quantitative studies to deal with statistics, um, and so the actual practice of anthropology and sociology has been very, very different. Um, although in recent years, I mean, since the, the world has become such a globalized place, it's very difficult for anthropologists now to find really the, the kind of isolated societies that they used to, to study. So I think there might be, yes, although there are very few anthropologists, though, do quantitative work. Um, but in terms of the kinds of things that sociologists and anthropologists study, I think there's a great convergence now. Mm -hmm. So this sort of contention between explanations that derive from biology and others that derive from culture, is it a recent phenomenon from an historical perspective or is it older than that? Yeah, well, I think it's the sort of modern way of looking at biology and culture dates back to the 19th century and certainly uh, Charles Darwin raised a number of questions regarding the, the universal or the culturally you know, variable aspects of human behavior and since then I mean there's been a lot of twists and turns to that relationship certainly um, that at the end of the 19th century um, Darwinism became social Darwinism, which was really a um, frankly racist um, sort of you know, way of studying different cultures, different peoples, sort of ranking sort of the white Northern European uh, as superior to other cultures, and just very explicitly saying that some sorts of people are superior and others are inferior. And that in Nazi Germany actually you know, put that into practice and truly discredited um, social Darwinism completely. And then I think the sort of pendant swung completely to in the other direction. That then you know, biology was equated with you know, racist kinds of views and people and just sort of fell out of the picture completely and culture came to dominate. And that 
I think from between the period of World War II and the 1970s, that was you know, pretty much the dominance of the cultural point of view. And then people once again started getting interested in biology. Um, probably the major development there was biologist Edmund Wilson's book on sociobiology that became, I mean, hugely um, popular. Really, it was for the most part, you know, talked much more about, you know, ants and bees and, um, but just had one chapter, the very last chapter on humans. But that ignited really a firestorm of controversy, but it also ignited a real upsurge in research on, you know, how both biology and culture can be you know, very important in explaining human behavior. Mm -hmm. So when we look across cultures, we find both human universals and cultural variations. So how can we reconcile those two things? Yeah, well, I think the major effort in my book is to say, well, it really depends on what you're studying. Mm -hmm. So it looks at different phenomena. And so, for example, um, names, first names, are, have no biological basis whatsoever. They are hugely variable across cultures. They, well, at least for the last century, they've changed very uh, rapidly that there's just no biological or universal basis for first names at all. So there's a whole, you know, a chapter on how people get first names and how these change and how they're just dramatically shaped until very recently, say gender was a huge division in and that there was just no overlap between male and female, you know, first names, but there's nothing biological about that. It's just the weight of cultural tradition. So names are on one extreme. What I put on the other extreme is incest aversion, where incest aversion is found in all societies. And I mean, there is a lot of debate on, you know, of course, um, you know, Freud and anthropologists have considered it to be socially constructed. And Freud even went so far as to say the reason there's such strong incest taboos is because there's such a strong instinct of children to you know, have erotic feelings for their parents. I don't buy that um, part, even though I'm a great admirer of Freud. I um, don't think he got incest correctly. And indeed, I think incest is one of the very few phenomena where we really have a very good picture of why incest aversion exists. And there's you know, two major reasons. One is almost unquestionably when, two, you know, when people share 50% um, of their genes, that is parents and children or brothers and sisters, that the chance of you know, serious um, genetic deformities and um, uh, vulnerability to many diseases greatly 
enhance. It's just natural selection would have um, made people prone to avoid having intercourse with close relatives. But, well, how does natural selection know who's a close relative? And there was a Finnish sociologist named Edward um, Westermark who a little over a hundred years ago, I think proposed what the mechanism was, which is that when people live together at an early age, generally up to three years old, that you develop an aversion to having sex with that person. So usually, you know, parents and children, brothers and sisters. Um, and what's interesting about that is that there are many settings where people do live with people who aren't relatives from a very early age. The Israeli um, kibbutzim, especially not so much now, but in say in the 1950s, 1960s, um, where the predicted aversion to having sex with um, people that you lived with from a very, very early age did hold. And almost uh, two residents of the same kibbutz who grew up together virtually never married each other, even though there was no cultural reason for them not to. Um, but they had evidently developed this um, incest diversion from living together at a very, very early age. So the, and incest almost, incest among people who share, um, well, certainly half their genes is almost unknown in human history. Where things get much looser is um, first cousins where their um, first cousins uh, share 12.5% of genes. And there's wide variability across different cultures on whether it's permissible to marry first cousins. In some societies, it's not just permissible, it's um, almost, it can be expected that you, you do that. So that yeah, just where the boundary of incest diversion lies is another open um, question. Mm -hmm. Do we know of any societies where people didn't have any incest taboos? Um, there are some very particular settings, usually among royalty. I mean, say so there's the ancient Egyptians are one setting, they, there's royal, royalty when um, native Hawaiians um, you know, had kings and queens, and there, and in, in certain European um, countries, you know, close relatives you know, of royal lineage often married um, one another. But I think that's such a particular exception to keep the you know, sort of dynastic qualities within the same genetic line, and often had not good um, consequences in terms of health um, for these uh, these kings and queens. But that is, you know, almost the only exception. And let me also say that this is not just a human phenomenon, mm -hmm. where 
say, um, closely related um, species, you know, say primates, um, well, that virtually mother, son, brother, sister incest almost never occurs. That primates usually don't know who their fathers are. So there's just no way of um, looking at that. But it's, it's not just among humans that we find incest aversion. Mm -hmm. So you've already mentioned incest and first names. Before I ask you about more examples, uh, could you define normality? Because since in your book you explore what's normal, uh, what is normality from a sociological perspective? Yeah, well, one way which I don't really explore very much, but which is often associated is just sort of statistical normality. Normality is whatever most people do. Um, and so when, you know, custom change, you have the new normal, I mean, which is just referring um, to what actually is, is happening. Um, I mean, I guess that's one way of viewing normality. In the book, what I try and do is develop two quite different portrayals of what is normal and then see how they relate to each other. The first would be biological normality. And that would be what natural selection leads humans to naturally want to do. Um, and so that over the you know, millions of years of human evolution, humans developed to um, be designed for certain um, kinds of things. Um, and that is biological normality. And when you have a dysfunction of those naturally designed factors, that would be biologically unnatural. But there's a second very different way of viewing normality, which is through cultural norms. That is where um, cultures define certain things as normal or as abnormal. And these are, unlike the un biological universals, these are widely variable across different societies. They change you know, over historical time. You have to learn what they are through you know, socialization. You're not, you have, you know, no, no, there's nothing genetic about um, normality and abnormality as there is for natural and unnatural. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so would you say that there's a set of criteria for us to determine if something is biological or cultural or a mix of both? Mm -hmm. Well, certainly if something is biological, you would expect at least some variant to be a constant in human society. So it doesn't matter if you're looking at you know, a, a group in New Guinea or in West Africa or in the contemporary West or in Asia, that it's going to be present in all societies. Um, whereas if it's cultural, you would expect much, much more variable variation. A second criteria would be, well, how easy is it to change things? And even though now um, this is itself changing, 
throughout human history, it was much easier to change cultural norms than it was um, you know, biological universals. Um, that may be reversing itself you know, with modern technologies and different kinds of you know, in vitro fertilization and being able to choose your genes now. So that may not be a constant any longer, but traditionally, I think that that would be would be so. And I guess the the third thing difference between something that's biological would be it's not just universal, it's not just um, difficult to change, but it's it's also innate. I mean that there's it's something that people were born. Um, to have certain tendencies, and they didn't learn them as they learn um, cultural norms. Mm -hmm. Is the concept of evolutionary mismatch important here to talk about? I mean, because there are things that maybe back in our evolutionary past serve the function, but now in the sort of modern industrialized societies we live in, uh, give rise to some problems, like, for example, health issues and things like that? Yes. Um, actually, I mean, one of the things I find most interesting about the biological perspective is that if you do accept that natural selection is the, the driving force, well, natural selection took place, I mean, you know, over the course of millions of years, um, you know, and so that the kind of environment that our innate mechanisms were designed to function in have very, very little resemblance to our present environments, giving rise to, I think, you know, some of the most interesting phenomena are those where humans were designed to respond to their environments in ways that just don't fit current society at all. I think mm -hmm. possibly the primary example of that now is obesity. Whereas for most of human history, I mean, calories were hard to find. And if and there was no way to preserve them. I mean if you you know if, if you killed an animal, you better consume that animal right away because you know it's it's just gonna go rot if you don't. Um, and so really until about the 19th century, it was you know, with the development of you know, railroads and efficient means of transportation, of refrigeration, um, that calories were pretty hard to come by. And you ate what you found in your local environment. So evolution would not have put any restrictions on any kind of calories that weren't you know, sort of harmful ones. So there's only a, a tiny amount of things like say feces, which is sort of a universal repulsion. Um, to, uh, but other than that, humans are designed to not just like foods, especially you know, fatty and sugary and salty kinds of um, of foods that just taste great, but not to have restricted appetite. So we're designed to want to eat more and more and more. 
I mean, so uh, probably the worst dietary advice you know, ever is, you know, only eat until you're full because, boy, it takes a lot <laughs> before people are full. So that obesity, going back to the mismatch notion, is the way people weren't designed to get fat because it was really tough to get fat in um, you know, the, the evolutionary um, you know, era, but um, designed to eat as many calories are available at that time. So once calories are everywhere, that's not a good <laughs> match between um, you know, you know, evolutionary um, prepared tendencies and the modern environment. So that is one, um, uh, perhaps the best example of an evolutionary mismatch. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, certainly many other, I mean, if you look at the kinds of things that people are afraid of, so fear would be another example of, you know, just, a remarkable number of people are, say, af afraid of flying. And obviously, um, planes didn't exist for, um, for evolution, but they combine certain things that would have been fearful. Being up at a great height, um, being in an enclosed space where you can't you know, get out of that space. And those sorts of fears that make no sense to us in modern societies are still incredibly common, even though planes objectively are extraordinarily safe to be on. Nevertheless, people fear them. Remarkable number of people fear snakes, even though the you know, snakes today are, are very, very rarely poisonous. And even um, Charles Darwin is a good example of um, Someone he had an intense fear of snakes, and there's a great passage um, in one of his writings where he goes to the zoo, and there's a snake, a snake behind a glass partition. So he knows there's no way that the snake can harm him. The snake, you know, so comes at Darwin on the other side of the glass, and Darwin just yeah, leaps back instinctively. I mean, so that's a fear probably wasn't learned. There were no snakes in you know, 19th century um, England, except those in the zoo. Um, so he couldn't have learned a snake fear. It was instinctual. And many people do have that, that kind of fear. So that's a, fear would be another example of an often mismatched um, thing between what's evolutionarily designed and what's sort of reasonable in current social circumstances. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So in the book, you refer to the harmful dysfunction approach to social phenomena. Could you explain that? Yeah, according to harmful dysfunction, and that's, um, you said the term and really the development of it was um, by you know, someone who's a, been a close colleague of mine, Jerome Wakefield, um, who's a um, well, philosopher. So it's not my, uh, my term, but I, I certainly find it very useful. And the basic principle of harmful dysfunction is that for something to be what's called a, a 
disorder. And it was originally applied to mental disorders, although I think it has much, much broader relevance. You have to have two things. That is, the first would be a biological dysfunction of the sort I've been talking about. That is that you know, some psychological or physical mechanism is not working the way that natural selection designed it to work. So that's a necessary component of, of a harmful dysfunction, is a dysfunction. But it's not a sufficient component. That is, in addition to the dysfunction, you have to have, it has to be harmful within a given social or cultural context. So that, and um, I think one example that I mentioned is, say, infertility which is clearly, from, from an evolutionary point of view, about the worst kind of dysfunction you can have. But under modern circumstances, it's not necessarily harmful because many people don't want to have children. There's no, uh, well, in many groups, there's no tremendous pressure to have children. It's not necessarily harmful under given cultural circumstances. So therefore, infertility would not be a disorder in some cultures, although in other cultures it is extremely um, harmful and therefore would be. So that you have this combination of, of biological dysfunction and sort of culturally defined harm. Or say deafness would be another example of what I think is quite clear, I mean, that well, all living species are designed to, to hear. And so it's clearly a dysfunction, but in modern culture, I mean, the, say, deaf culture um, is, can be flourishing and that, you know, people find, you know, other deaf people that it's not harmful under certain conditions. So it's not, deafness need not be a disorder in particular cultural circumstances. Then you have other things where cultures define um, certain kinds of things as extremely harmful. For centuries, say, left-handed people were seen, you know, left-handedness was seen as extremely deviant and um, very strong measures were made to try and convert left-handed people into right-handed people. So it was very harmful, but there's no dysfunction that being left-handed or right-handed, it makes no difference to any activity. Evolution couldn't care less whether people were left-handed or, or right-handed. So that would be a case where there's was right, harm, but no dysfunction. Masturbation would be another um, um, example of something that was for centuries seen as extremely harmful that uh, even you know, into the 19th century, you know, people who masturbated were seen as you know, prone to all sorts of dreadful diseases, even death. Um, it was one of the most shameful things that somebody could do. So it was, it was associated with an extreme amount of harm. But clearly, there was no dysfunction, so that their masturbation 
you know, people who said it was a disorder were simply wrong about, about that. So. Mm -hmm. So let's run through a few more examples of things that you explore in the book. Let's start with cowardice and courage. Could you tell us about them? Yeah, I think cowardice and courage are just a tremendously interesting topic because I use that to illustrate how what's natural and what's culturally approved can be the exact opposite to each other, where um, courage is just not something people are naturally designed to be, to be like. In fact, I mean, cowardice, if we define it most generally as moving away from dangerous situations, all living organisms, even you know, the smallest one-celled organism, when they detect toxins in their environment, take some kind of protective defensive action. I mean, it, it may be possibly the most um, in, innate um, kind of reaction. So that not just people, but all living organisms are naturally designed to be cowardly. Whereas socially, just the opposite. That is for centuries and centuries, um, for males in any case, that being courageous was associated with exposing yourself to dangerous situations. And um, you know, definition of courage is to sort of risk your life for the benefit of a greater good. From an evolutionary point of view, I mean, that's just incredible. Right, that's suicidal. That no, you know, evolutionary designed organism can would ever act in a courageous way, except under extreme, extremely rare circumstances. I think one geneticist put it that, well, yes, he he could see getting killed for the you know the benefit of you know, two of his brothers or eight of his cousins. Um, because there's a net genetic um, benefit. But almost in almost every occasion, people, courageous people are sacrificing themselves for those they have no genetic ties with. So again, courage makes no evolutionary sense whatsoever, but it is incredibly admired culturally. And just the opposite for cowardice. Cowardice is evolutionarily programmed, but subject to tremendous shame um, culturally. Mm -hmm. so. What about the case of grief? How do you look at grief from your perspective? Yeah, well, I think grief would be in a, I think, interesting sense, quite different than courage and cowardice, because there the cultural norms, culture and biology are aligned in the case of grief. That is, biologically, I think people, and not just people, but again, um, primates grieve, um, are designed to become profoundly sad when someone very close to them, which is, usually means some kind of genetic tie, although not certainly not always. Um, 
so that, but it's socially considered abnormal not to grieve. I mean, I think, you know, something's, you know, your mother just died and you're not sad. I mean, how can that be? Um, so that both cultural norms expect people to grieve and biologically were designed to grieve so that things are congruent. Biology and culture are congruent in the case of um, grief, whereas they're totally opposite in the case of courage and cowardice. Mm-hmm. What about uh, sexuality and gender? I mean, there are people, some sociologists, I guess that the bulk of them perhaps, that say that gender is a social construct. Do you agree with it? Um, no. Um, that is at the heart of evolution of, is certainly uh, you know, survive and reproduce. So reproduction, and this has nothing to do with humans. I mean, this is just all species. And to reproduce, you have to have males and you have to have females. It's just, you know, that's basic biology. And it's always been um, basic biology. I mean, so that certainly has developed a cultural overlay that doesn't necessarily correspond. But... um, but there's certain inherent human differences in sociology by gender where it happens, I mean, that pregnancy happens in females, not in males. Males, the optimal evolutionary, evolutionarily designed strategy would be to spread their sperm in you know, as, as many different um, women as possible the optimal female strategy would be just the opposite that that's not gonna you know help them they're you know they're pregnant for nine months and then that they're you know um really restricted for much longer after that mm-hmm. um so their major strategy would be to have an investment in one faithful partner and that aspect is, I think, um, biologically um, um, designed. Now, recent, uh, you know, in, say, the past century, for example, it, it doesn't necessarily align with social norms. That is, social norms are now much more, um, grant much more equal sexuality to males and to females. And of course, evolution would have wanted both men and women to um, pass their genes on to future generations just in through different strategies. Now those strategies don't really make sense in the modern world. So you have a much, much greater convergence in sexual behavior between men and women now than in the past. But that is a fact of culture and not, and social behavior and not biology. Mm-hmm. So, in your work, you study a lot mental health and mental illness. Would you say that mental illnesses vary across cultures? And maybe there are two questions here. The first one is do they vary in terms of how they manifest in people that suffer from them? 
and the other one, uh, I mean, do they vary in terms of how people look at those disorders, the society in general, and if they classify them as disorders or not, right? Um, yeah, the, the simple answer is yes, yes, and yes. That is the <laughs> huge variation across different cultures in um, whether they recognize something as a mental disorder, how it's expressed um, you know, in, in those cultures, how frequent it is. There are a small number of constants across cultures, but there's far more variability in mental disorders than there is constancy. And, and even uh, the, probably one of the only major exceptions would be what we now call, say, melancholic depression. That is just very, very serious kinds of depression that are different from grief. They don't, they're not necessarily connected to some kind of a precipitant. They are not time limited. Um, they have very you know, profoundly serious symptoms. Those have seemed to, with great variability and frequency, but seem to be found pretty much everywhere and from the beginning of recorded medical history. Mm -hmm. But those, are, I think, are, are the exceptions rather than the rule. Right. Okay, so one last question. Uh, and going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, uh, how would you say uh, the disciplines that are more biologically oriented could inform the ones that are more culture oriented and vice versa? Yeah, well, I think the place I would recommend starting for both biological and cultural disciplines is to recognize that in most cases there's going to be contributions on both sides. That is that something like incest diversion or naming patterns are the exceptions. I mean where I would give incest diversion to the biological side and naming patterns to the cultural side, but for most kinds of phenomena there's going to be both biology and culture in play. And the trick is to recognize the different ways in which they interact with each other. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So let's end on that note, Dr. Orwitz. Just before we go, would you like to mention some places on the internet where people can find your work? Well, the uh, best place is always, <laughs> I, no, maybe not, the word might not be best, but the most efficient place <laughs> to find it would be Amazon. And, um, and uh, this is the book that, um, what, that we've been discussing here, and there's you know, sev several others that, um, that you can find, um, can find there. I don't always like ordering on Amazon, but I've always been happy <laughs> doing that. Okay, great. So I will be leaving links to that in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Orwitz, thank you a lot again for taking the time to come on the show. It was really a pleasure to talk to you.
Oh, well, th thank you for inviting me, and I would say the same. It's great pleasure. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been doing this channel for three years, bringing you top academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. And I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Even $1 would already be a great help. Otherwise, you also have links to PayPal in the description box of the interview. And please share it, leave a like, and hit the subscription button if you liked the interview. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henry Kalenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Kintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windager, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zoop, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spigne, Phil Kavanagh, Cory Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omri Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Librant, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Staten T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Deza Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adaner Usmani, my, pro my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Van Egdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardas France, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Ruzieski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.